Welcome to The 7th Art. My name is Christopher Heron. I'm the host of The 7th Art, a podcast and video magazine about cinema. I'm joined here today by Pavan Mundi, one of the producers of The 7th Art. Hello, Pavan. Hello, Chris. We've got together in order to discuss our interview with TIFF's artistic director, Cameron Bailey. This is a profile that we did. Our, our profiles are about aspects of the industry that aren't necessarily a writer or director, director primarily. I don't think we've dealt with a writer. This is obviously the biggest get that you can really get in Toronto. Cameron's basically synonymous with the Toronto International Film Festival at this point. He's a man of, uh, of legend, myth in the city. Of legend, myth. I mean, to give you a sense of how busy he is, and he is very busy, he's constantly traveling the world, visiting various film festivals, kind of scouting for the festival uh, pretty much year-round. We shot this profile in December of 2012, just before Christmas, and I think we, uh, the first time we attempted to book him for this profile was, I believe, in, it was summer 2012. That's what I'm saying. No, right. spring. Like, it was early. Oh, uh, right, right. It was spring, so it took uh, 10 months? Yeah, about 10 months. Yeah, he's a very busy guy. Uh, uh, he was game. He showed up. Uh, we did it on his turf at the Soho House, which is, uh, I think, uh, important because the Soho House typically has a no-camera policy, and uh, very little filming happens there. And so when we kind of marched in with our uh, three cameras and tripods and camera bags, there were lots of uh, Soho House members who are an interesting uh, type of people. I think kind of threatened by our uh, photographic uh, equipment. They put us in the unfinished uh, attic, uh, still partially under construction at this point. So right. as Toronto wasn't that old. I think they opened it for TIFF that previous uh, fall. Right, and uh, there's a lot to talk about with this uh, interview. So, uh, I mean, uh, there is one thing I remember, uh, excuse me, Cameron saying in the interview was about how when he was coming up, uh, you know, in the late 80s, there were a lot of young filmmakers kind of making noise. Your Adam McGoyans, your Patricia Rosemas, your Bruce McDonalds, uh, etc. And he kind of talks about how he doesn't think that exists today. And I remember when we were shooting that interview, I was, I was shocked to hear him say that. I think maybe uh, my view of that has changed. I, I kind of understand what he was saying and maybe I kind of agree with it. But what do you, what do you think, Chris, about that statement? I think it's a mix of it being true to some extent. Uh, back then, there were simply less people making films because the accessibility to the equipment and the concept of, oh, I'm going to be a filmmaker was not the same. So because there were fewer people and they've all probably had to go through the same channels to see films, to get access to equipment, it, it just results in a, a more practical community. Whereas now, you don't really have to have that. You can you can do it all via your webcam if you wanted to. Right, so that's, I think, a lot more isolated because you're not relying on uh, the assistance of others and maybe what's resulted now versus, you know, 20, 25 years uh, ago is maybe a more divided uh, community. There's kind of young people doing things, but uh, it seems to be, uh, it seems to be some divisions, perhaps. Yeah, and then I think that there's also just the fact that, you know, Cameron, apart from being having tastes that aren't necessarily in Canada for the stuff he programs and how busy he is, maybe he's just not, you know, aware of what's happening in Toronto the same way that we 
would be. Um, so I think that explains maybe some of the initial shock that you would have had, just because we're a bit more connected right. to that sphere. And uh, in this interview, you also kind of talk about Cameron Bailey, the brand, uh, the corporate corporatization of... No, I, I use yeah. the word brand, but I think this is a good opportunity to kind of elucidate that, which was that TIFF, not just with Cameron, but with their programmers as a whole, they do they do literally put them out in the adver- advertisements. Like uh, last year, I believe, mm-hmm. they're, what do you call them? The cardboard stand-ups or whatever. that. Card- Standee. Standee, yeah, where like you, you literally see the programmer and get some information on their programming. And I think it's it's branding in the sense that they become part of the brand at that point, but it's also clearly trying to personalize the experience, give you an impression of who's involved. So it's almost an anti... I mean, they're a huge corporation, but they're trying to absolutely uh, give a more personal uh, image. So what is it is corporate branding as personal. Uh, yeah, and what I, what I was getting at with that is more so that as a programmer, and that was the, the line, or that was the, the question at that point, you really are at that point summarizing your interests, summarizing what you do and putting yourself out there and it, and I was curious if that results in maybe a specification of like oh I only do this or you know this is my the flip side of saying this is what I know a lot about you can also get pigeonholed maybe in programming a specific um, style or be associated with a type of film right so what at what to what degree is Cameron Bailey involved with the program he's scouting the films is he is he watching what's pre-selected for him like, I'm, I'm sure he operates I'm sure he operates like an editor for a magazine where maybe if they're not necessarily writing things they are overseeing the fact that it all fits into the larger picture I know that he does do some programming but it's for a specific specific programs specifically the city to city i believe and he also has a uh physicist on africa south asia those, those cinemas mm-hmm. um so but overall he's not and i'm sure his voice is felt more in the galas but maybe not in you know right so documentary. do you think uh, this profile is of special interest to who should be listening to this should it be young filmmakers uh aspiring programmers Canadians, Torontonians. I think you listed all of the people that are applicable for this. Um, I mean, if your interest is listening to a director talk about a action film, this would not be for you. But uh, I think anyone with a interest in one of the most influential film festivals, and therefore festivals broadly, it, it, it gives a little insight into how you basically have to juggle commercial success and artistic hopefully artistic success as well um at that stage all right sounds good go to seventhart.org that is seventhart spelled out.org and you can watch this otherwise i hope you enjoy the podcast Knock it down. <laughs>
So I was wondering if you could um, maybe talk about how the industry in Toronto and broadly has changed from when you began writing to mm. now. Wow, that's from now magazine to, to now. now. From now to now. <laughs> um, so when I started um, in the late '80s, essentially, I guess I, I technically started in the mid '80s when I was still at university. I went to Western, did an English degree, and I was covering the festival. I think my last two years of my program at Western, so that would have been 86 and 87. Um, and then came to Toronto, started writing first for Cinema Canada magazine, which no longer exists, but used to be the national English language magazine on, in the film industry. I was a trade reporter for Cinema Canada for about eight months, and then I uh, started at Now Magazine as a critic. And at that time, I think, at least I had the impression, because I was so immersed in it, I had the impression that Canadian film was really important and central to the national debate. Maybe it never was, but it felt like it was more so then. Um, this is, of course, pre-internet, it's pre-social media, you know, uh, cultural debates happened in publications for the most part, or maybe a little bit on the radio. Um, and I, I wanted to be a part of that. Um, and now it's an entirely different world, and it, it feels like the Canadian cultural scene is much more plugged into the U.S. in particular, but maybe also the rest of the world. Um, and that there's just more going on. It's more, there are more films being made. Digital technology has changed a lot. Um, the funding structures have changed. Um, and so, you know, it feels like an entirely different moment. The other thing that's probably relevant is that in Toronto in particular, in the late 80s, early 90s, the Ontario Film Development Corporation at the time, which is now the OMDC, um, was being run by Wayne Clarkson, former head of the Toronto Film Festival, and then uh, subsequent head of Telefilm Canada. Um, and, you know, Wayne has a kind of a, a cowboy aesthetic in terms of how he looks and presents himself, but he's really committed to Canadian cinema. And he and the people who were also funding films in Ontario, particularly in Toronto at the time, um, were the ones who began giving wads of cash to Adam McGoyan and Peter Mettler and Bruce McDonald and uh, um, uh, Jeremy Pedeswa and Don McKellar and people like that. Um, and so there was what came to be known as the so-called Toronto New Wave, which came out of that time. And so you, you really felt like you were part of a, a kind of a movement, because these filmmakers all knew each other and sometimes worked on each other's films. I don't feel like that's there today. Maybe that's just my perception. Maybe I'm not as connected to that world anymore, but I don't feel that there are filmmakers who are coming out and making their first and second features in Toronto, going to the major film festivals around the world, winning awards as Adam did for, I think, his second feature, um, and, um, and, and helping each other get their films made. So that feels like a significant change. Would you localize that in kind of the money that's available, or would it be more on the distribution or the exhibition side of the equation? Mm. Um, you know, I am a believer in structures actually determining cultural production in a fairly significant way. I think we've certainly seen it in Montreal with what Sodec can do, and then certain producers and directors taking advantage of the money and also the the, the cultural imperatives that are, that are part of Sodec funding to produce films like Denis Villeneuve's films and Philippe Falardeau, et cetera, and Xavier Dolan, and, and so forth. Um, and in Toronto, it feels like we don't have that to the same degree anymore. I think there's money here, certainly, but I think it's always more than just the check. I think it's, it's, it's a kind of a direction that can come from cultural bureaucrats. 
um, who, who want to see a certain kind of cinema supported. And now I think that's directed a little bit more towards commercial cinema, or cinema that's going to try to get mainstream Canadian audiences. Um, we all know we haven't been terribly successful in English Canada doing that, but I think that's still the aim of, you know, Telefilm's Toronto office and the OMDC, etc. Um, but at the time, in the late 80s, early 90s, that wasn't the case. I think they were trying to produce auteurs in a way that maybe they're not as much now. Um, through the lens of TIFF, uh, I've heard stories that kind of in the early 90s when Bruce Elder's uh, Canadian cultural identity book came out, that mm -hmm. there was a kind of flashpoint of interest in this, and that since then, as like a major moment, it's kind of been decreasing. Mm -hmm. Is that uh, an evaluation that you can confirm, or is it maybe a myth that people are yeah. ascribing to? You know, I've been talking with some of my colleagues at TIFF about Canadian cultural identity and, and our role in it and cinema's role in it recently and I would go back a little further and say mm. that there was a high point in terms of the, the debate certainly in Toronto around Canadian cultural identity that probably took place in the 1970s right and I think there was a, a point where you saw a rise in um, uh, cultural production that had a, a, a sort of a, a national um, a drive some kind of desire to express something about what ca Canada was um, and you saw it certainly in theater in the 70s, you saw it in literature in the 60s and 70s, um, and you saw it in film, I think, in the 70s and 80s. Um, and so there was a lot of discussion around that and debates and books like Margaret Atwood's Survival, et cetera, et cetera, <coughs> that came out around that time. But then I actually think that we've been in a slow decline. Mm -hmm. So I think by the time we get to Bruce Elder, um, you see, you know, somebody essentially tilting against windmills. You see mm -hmm. somebody trying to restart that debate and, and being somewhat successful because he's a, you know, great provocateur, uh, Bruce, but um, I think that the, the time when that debate was central to cultural uh, dialogue in Canada had actually already passed. Is the kind of disappearance of the open vault of, of Canadian, like a Canadian filmmaker's work at TIFF, the mm -hmm. festival, uh, disappearing, is that a reflection of this or is it completely unrelated? I think it's, I think it's somewhat unrelated. Um, we're still showing um, a, a restoration mm. of a Canadian film at the festival every year. Now it's a part of our TIFF Cinematheque program, so we had five films in the, in the section this year for the first time. One of them was a Canadian film. I think we'll continue with that. And now that we're also running year-round with the Cinematheque and we have more opportunities to, to restore and, and bring Canadian films back to, to audiences, I think that's also a better opportunity mm. for it. The Canadian Open Vault had, I'd say, mixed success at the festival because it's, first of all, it's not a new film and the festival audience tends to be mostly driven towards new films. Um, and, and second, I think, you know, the, the study and the teaching of that, that history of Canadian film history maybe is not what it once was. It feels like it's become more of a specialist exercise and, and uh, I mean, I don't know for sure, this might be speculation, but uh, it feels to me that um, you know your average Canadian growing up now who may have to read you know Margaret Lawrence or um, you know Kinsella or somebody like that um, doesn't necessarily have to see going down the road or mm. those films from the 60s and 70s that that those of us in film think define Canadian cinema or the birth of it anyhow. Now this year there was a, a kind of controversy over um, Looper being the opening film, but mm -hmm. the, I've also read the counter-argument, which is that uh, the gala 
can paradoxically hurt a film from reaching its audience mm. because it's not really a general audience right. that is is uh, comprising most of the the opening screening. Mm -hmm. And what was the kind of decision making behind mm. behind that? Well, it began for me about four years ago, <laughs> so it was not a quick decision. Mm, I'll yeah. tell you that much. Um, when I came in at this job, one of the things I wanted to do was to shift what opening night meant for our festival, mm. and that's really mostly because I felt like the festival had grown up um, and matured enough that we didn't have to um, open always with a Canadian film, um, and that we should, in the same way that Berlin doesn't always open with a German film and Cannes doesn't always open with a French film, we should have the ability to open with whatever film best suited the position. The position is complicated though because it is not just the the kind of the signature that launches the festival in terms of that position. Uh, it's what's written about the opening night film by our own research is always the film that has the most media coverage of any film in the festival. So it's the one that certainly within Canada gets tons and tons of coverage. So that's important and it, has, it sends a signal in terms of what, what the festival is going to be. Um, but it's also, uh, we screened it in two venues um, on that night of the festival, in Roy Thompson Hall, which is an entirely um, sort of uh, stakeholder screening. Mm -hmm. So it's for all of the people and the companies who, and the organizations who make uh, the festival possible. Um, so that's everyone from the government agencies, the corporate uh, sponsors, all the individual donors, um, the, the company that brought us the film, it's those people in the house, right? It's not a general audience, as you say. Um, and then the other thing that, that happened was historically, a lot of the industry that came to the festival, the media that came to the festival, came on Friday. They came the day after opening day, right? So. Um, and they came because they felt like, many of them felt like the opening night at Toronto is a domestic affair, it's for the local audience only and we don't need to be there. We'll start our festival on Friday. So all of those things shaped what I wanted to do and so um, I wanted, first of all, the festival to begin on Thursday to actually, you know, kick off for mm. everybody who's attending. Um, I have to pay attention to the audience that's in the room uh, on that night and make sure it's a film that's going to work for them. Um, but then I also wanted to expand the, the range of what was possible and frankly we had a limited number of Canadian films from which to choose as the years wore on because you want a film that's a big enough scale to work in front of 2,000 people. We're actually showing it in two cinemas so it's a total of like 3,500 people that night. It's got to be big enough scale, accessible enough to work on that level. You have, we have a massive red carpet on opening night so you need some kind of red carpet um, talent and, um, and you want a film that is going to be supported and helped by that position, not hurt by it. So um, a film that's going to work on a, on a, on a broad enough level to, to, to really benefit. And those aren't always Canadian films. The number of Canadian films mm -hmm. uh, that fit all of those criteria is very small every year. And then also, when you, even when you have films that fit those criteria, some of them don't want opening night because they are maybe, um, they're, they're looking for a sale in the U.S. and they want to reach the buyers who are maybe more likely to attend their film on a Friday, Saturday, Sunday of the, of the first weekend of the festival. So it's complicated. There's all kinds of factors involved. And uh, we began, uh, maybe I think three years ago, uh, trying to push the limits of what opening can do with a film called Creation, a British mm -hmm. film. Um, no Canadian co um, content at all, uh, but a film that I thought had some ideas in it that would work for the opening night audience. 
And then um, uh, two years ago, I think it was, we did the U2 documentary mm -hmm. from the sky down, uh, Davis Guggenheim film, Oscar-winning documentary filmmaker. Um, again, not Canadian, American, um, but and again, you have a um, the, the red carpet presence with Bono and the Edge from U2 coming in to support it. And, um, you know, the film, even if you're not a U2 fan, accessible enough because it's about the creative process and, and people can just, you know, enjoy seeing a behind-the-scenes mm -hmm. look at a, a major band um, uh, produce an album that I think everybody knows. So those things work to a degree, and they were good steps, and I thought they, they achieved what I wanted them to achieve, but they, we, we didn't get all the way there, I think, until this year when we opened Little Looper, and that was um, a film that was from a director that we knew and we'd screened before in Ryan Johnson, um, The Red Carpet, value that we had wanted in terms of um, uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Bruce Willis and Emily Blunt and a film that was you know exciting and 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 totally accessible but also had ideas in it it wasn't just a shoot 'em up but it actually invited you to think about you know the paradoxes of time travel and what you would do in that situation confronted with your uh, future or past self across the table that kind of thing so it worked on a number of different levels for me, but the problem, I f the thing I feared was that it's it's loud. Mm. It's a really loud, you know, violent action movie, and I wasn't entirely sure about it. But I was I was mostly convinced that it would go over really well. We had to have a lot of conversations internally because it was a brand new step for us, and uh, not everybody was was even as convinced as I was. But in the end, we went ahead, and it I thought it went beautifully. Mm. It's exactly what I wanted that opening night. I hope we can do more of it. It's also loud metaphorically, I think, because as you say, there were there were other non-Canadian films before, but it kind of occupied a space that maybe people associated with a Hollywood film, even though yeah. Ryan Johnson's not like Steven Spielberg. Right. Like, but um, it's interesting because there's this perception that the, the festivals may be moving a little bit more towards Hollywood, mm -hmm. but it also seems like when you uh, became co-director, there was a move to more different countries being represented. Yeah. So there's this equal but opposite breadth that's being developed. And I'm wondering, mm -hmm. um, was that kind of a holdover from your programming days, this desire to kind of expand the, the breadth of the festival? Yeah, it's, it's a few different things. One is I'm, I'm really interested in world cinema. And when I say world cinema, I don't mean just, you know, sort of gentle, uh, naturalistic films from other parts of the world where you probably will never get a chance to, to see in, in person. Um, I'm also talking about, you know, massive commercial mm. Chinese films or Indian films or, you know, uh, a, a, a big European co-production. Um, what I wanted to do was just break open that idea of what a red carpet movie was. Red carpet is not just Hollywood. And also um, just break open the idea of what audiences were interested in and willing to see. And so that there's a range. And I, I think most of us have a range of taste that allows us to watch a popcorn blockbuster uh, on one day and watch, you know, uh, a, a hard-hitting documentary or, a, you know, more challenging art house movie on another day. Certainly if you're attending the festival, you probably have a pretty wide uh, taste in, in your film viewing. And I wanted the festival to represent all of that. And I, the thing that's hard to do and that I try to do as much as possible is to actually give all of those different kinds of films uh, the space that they should have within the festival, the, the kind of the media space, the, 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 the conversational space within the festival. Um, so you do that through actual media coverage and we depend on our communications department to do that. I 
as much as possible through social media, try to you know, just hype the films that I think may be smaller um, so that people get to know them. Um, and the thing we find is that, I mean, we've, we've done some research recently where we find that what drives people to movies at the festival is not um, who's in it so much or you know, what stars they're going to see on the red carpet. It's what the film's about. So they want to see movies that are about subjects that interest them, whether mm. it's you know, international politics or family relationships or you know, whatever it might be. And they'll usually only know one or two films at the festival that are about that. So they might have known Argo as a film about politics, right? But okay, we can introduce them to six or seven other films that are also about politics that they would never have heard of. So that's what I'm trying to do, to actually follow people's interests in how we program the film and film festival and how we schedule it so that they can find the film that they want. Um, some of them they'll know about already, and those will be the more celebrated ones, and then others they won't, and it's our job to actually get them to those people. It sounds almost like there's this new media move towards recommending things to people, like aggregating a list yes. of things for <laughs> yes. like each specific user. And I'm wondering, it seems like maybe the big tension with TIFF is that it's so it's got such a breadth to it mm -hmm. that it maybe loses some of the very the more obvious curatorial qualities that a smaller mm -hmm. festival will have, mm -hmm. where they're only programming very specific films. Yes. Um, so how do you kind of reach that individual and kind of recommend something that may seem like it's a festival that just has everything? Right. Um, it's tough because yeah, we're not. Rotterdam, you know, and we're not Udine, so we're not a festival that has a very specific curatorial um, line. We, we do show films for a number of different tastes, a number of different mm -hmm. audiences, and that's by design. Um, and it's, it's kind of in our DNA, it's how we always have presented the festival. We were the festival of festivals, you know, at the, at the beginning for many, many years, right? So that's, that's the whole plan. Um, but once you do that, then I think you do have to, and, and now that we have more and more tools available to, to do it, I think we, it, it's kind of incumbent on us to try to, you know, we got to kind of Netflix out the festival, do you know what mm -hmm. I mean? So there's got to be a way for you to find, based on your own interests and your own tastes, and what you've seen and liked before, things that you're going to like this year at the festival. Um, we don't have, you know, exact tools in place for that yet. You know, I do it in a kind of ad hoc way um, through Twitter and social media. Um, I always encourage the programmers to do that as much as possible, make connections, you know. Mm. Um, but I think there's more that we can do. I think we're always going to be that, um, that kind of big tent in terms of um, the, the range of films that we offer to the audience, but I think we have to do more to, to allow them to find their own festival within it. Mm. And, and kind of making gestures towards that audience that doesn't maybe necessarily know what they want. Is there ever like an equal but opposite kind of point where something like Wavelengths, which is a really defined community within the festival, may tend to like, because last year it was moving more to features and, and it was kind of subsumed uh, visions. Mm -hmm. um, is there ever kind of a problem where when you try to appeal to one crowd, you maybe kind of mm -hmm. lose a little bit of the other? Mm. Um, I suppose that could happen, and in that particular case of Wavelengths and Visions, I felt like that actually worked pretty mm. well. Um, we always felt that the Visions audience and the Wavelengths audience were very similar in terms of the kind of films that they watched. And the Visions films were, were feature and narrative for the most part, um, but they were, uh, 
they were kind of questioning narrative and questioning feature film conventions enough to, I think, make them interesting to the wavelengths audience. And I think there, there's a, there are very, very few people who watch only purely formalist experimental cinema, <laughs> right? I think most people who watch that stuff and enjoy it also watch other things. Yeah, so yeah. I, th I felt like wavelengths was, uh, and visions, there was a, a natural bridge between mm -hmm. them, you know? So um, I talked with Andrea Picard, the, the programmer for that section, at length. And uh, we did a little bit of a sounding externally as well, just checking in with some other people and see how they would feel about that. Had a lot of conversations within TIFF, and then we went ahead with it. And, and the response has been largely positive. I mean, I've seen some of the reviews that have come in from publications both in North America and in Europe, and I think the response has been good. Um, so we'll definitely continue it. And in a way, um, you know, you can. Th there's lots of different ways to think about the festival. One way is that the wavelengths strand now, including the the feature films, is kind of like our, you know, Rotterdam or Alacarno or you know that kind of approach to cinema. hybrid between genre exercises and maybe something that's a little more aesthetically ambitious. Mm. Um, and and again, you put, if you put a programmer in charge of that who actually knows the field really well and knows the audience well, then I think you, over time you can you can generate something that's very specific and a defined audience within the festival. And are you trying to maybe get those um, programmers' personalities out there a little bit more? Yeah. To, and, and specifically your own. I'm, I'm mm. interested there because kind of following things you've recommended throughout time, there's like a, a number of different phases. Like there's the Cameron Billy that likes John Aconfra, but then mm -hmm. there's the the city to city focusing mm -hmm. on urban spaces throughout mm -hmm. the world. And then there's even um, uh, India specifically and, and, mm -hmm. and the more mainstream films that you're gravitating to now. So mm -hmm. how do you kind of balance your mm -hmm. own uh, taste as a brand that you try to uh, represent? Damn, I have never thought of my own taste as a brand, and I hope I never do. Well, it, it seems that way with the festival that yeah. you now have you have photos of the programmers. Right. You yeah, have we do. kind of we like do. a yes, it, it don't, not a brand so cynically, but mm -hmm. more like you know communicating that sure. more clearly to the. Well, it's a good point, and and look, uh, each of the the programmers is there for a reason. Um, they represent a certain kind of. Um, approach to cinema, a certain kind of taste, a certain range of expression. Um, and in most cases, that's fairly consistent. Like, mm. I think once you get to know what Colin Getty's programs or what Dimitri Epides programs, you can kind of follow that world if you're also into that. And you probably won't be surprised or disappointed too often. You'll know, you know, you're going to see some great work and it's going to be of a certain kind. And then there's people like me who just by into my position need to have something that's uh, a range that's broader. Mm. So, um, you know, I, it was important to me when Chris Marker died, for instance, to open the festival with Sans Soleil, with a free screening. That's a film that's meant a lot to me in terms of my own interest and development in terms of uh, in my career. It's a film I love. And, um, and I want everybody to see it, <laughs> you know, probably more than once if, if uh, possible. Um, so I'm doing that on the one hand, and on the other hand, yes, I'm also, you know, getting up and introducing Looper as the opening night film of the festival, and I think, um, for me anyhow, there's a continuum. I don't mm. think that those are necessarily so um, distant from each other, uh, 
but uh, I can understand that for some people, you know, these are two totally different kinds mm, of filmmaking. Yeah. Fair enough. But I'm interested in both and a lot that's beyond those two as well. Has the city to city gone through a kind of growing pains? It seems like mm. maybe this and maybe the uh, year before were the most clearly defined mm -hmm. what was going on. There's maybe a greater range of the films that are presented, mm -hmm. a little more clearly defined why mm -hmm. those areas. And maybe there was the, obviously the controversy in the first year. With sure. I'm wondering how that experience was, because I, yeah. I know it was something that you valued. Yeah, I mean, it, it was something I really wanted to introduce to the festival. I'm very interested in, in urban spaces and, and how people move through urban spaces and, and inhabit them. Um, and how cinema represents that, and how cinema is both a, a kind of influencing factor and also influenced by the urban experience. It's, it's really interesting to me. Um, and yeah, look, we got hit pretty hard um, in the first year when we launched with Tel Aviv, and I feel like this section was really misunderstood, and the debate around it um, kind of devolved into something that was about Middle East politics. Mm. It had nothing to do with the intention of the program. Um, and then when we came the second year with, with Istanbul, it, it, there was a little bit more of a focus. And it, the, for the most part, those were films that hadn't been widely seen in, in North America. So I think people began to, to see the value of the program in terms of introducing new cinema in a stronger way. Buenos Aires even more. And then finally, I think with Mumbai, we hit it at exactly the right moment. Because not only were the films there, but we had, f I think for the first time, 10 new films. They were all from 2012. Uh, and in previous years, we'd had we'd gone back a little mm -hmm. bit, and in the first year, we went all the way back to provide some context, and maybe that was actually part of the problem in terms of the response. Um, but yeah, I've been kind of I've honestly been working out how I want the program to work year by year, and I started with one idea, and I'm not this in the same place anymore. Um, also, when I started the program, I was working with a programmer, uh, Kate Laurie Vandeven, mm -hmm. who is working on her uh, PhD dissertation in. Um, cinema and its representation of urban space. So she had a very kind of scholarly approach to the curation of the section that is maybe a little bit different from where we are now. And now what I want to do with it is to introduce um, a kind of a hot spot every year, a place where there's exciting cinema happening, where there are filmmakers that you may not yet know, but you will. Um, and also to show them in context uh, and in conversation with each other so that you get a sense not just of the individual filmmaker but also of the, the cultural, the social context that produces that cinema. Partly because I'm not so persuaded by the auteur theory mm. anymore and I don't always want to organize things around directors. Um, and I think that th this context is actually an interesting way to, to, to see new cinema. And your comment about the auteur thing is something I really wanted to ask you about, and maybe mm -hmm. we could wrap up with that, which sure. is that discovery seems like it's growing each year. And mm -hmm. it I, I'm curious, what are the pressures that you face to kind of, both on behalf of the filmmakers and the audience, to mm -hmm. program people, uh, films that people know the filmmaker versus mm -hmm. someone they don't know because it's their first first feature? Yeah, it's tough. I mean, it's, it's always easier to draw an audience for a film that's by a known filmmaker, or even a film that's been celebrated somewhere else before. There are certain kind of marketing hooks that, yes, we depend on mm -hmm. to get people interested in some of the 300-odd films that we're showing every year. Um, but I just, I mean, curatorially, that's just not the most interesting way for me to put a festival together, you know? And, and I think what I try to do is sort of essentially make a bargain with the film goer that we're going to show you some interesting stuff, trust us, you know, and then let's deliver um, what we 
consider to be the most um, you know uh, vital program that we can but in some cases you're gonna have to just trust us that this film that you've never heard of from a director you've never heard of is is worth your while it's worth your time um, and and you know I, I try not to disappoint people <laughs> too often I, I hope it for the most part you know we deliver thank you Cameron my pleasure